0: All right, well, hey, good morning to everyone. It's good to see everybody. Uh, We want to jump back into our study of the Gospel of John. We're working our way through this amazing gospel that is the uh, account of Christ. And uh, it has been so rich and deep and so good for us to consider who our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is. And so we want to continue with that. And so our text for this morning is John chapter 10, verses 11 through 21. So I'd invite you to turn there, John chapter 10 today. Well, after looking last week at the third of seven I am statements by Jesus in the gospel of John this morning, uh, we're going to investigate the fourth I am statement. So if you're with us last week, we examined what it meant when Jesus said, I am the door of the sheep with no time break between chapters 9 and 10, Jesus wanted all who gathered around him to know that there's only one entry point to heaven. There's only one entry point to eternal life. There's only one entry point into God's sheepfold, and it is through Jesus who is the door. He is the door of the sheep. Well, this morning, as we look at verses 11 through 21, sheep herding remains the context, but Jesus is going to shift gears a little bit and use a different metaphor as he identifies himself as the good shepherd. Three times here in verses 11 through 21, Jesus will say, I am the good shepherd, Now, before we dive in uh, and look at this in more detail this morning, I think it's important to understand what Jesus means when he says that he is the good shepherd. Uh, In the Greek construct here, it literally reads the shepherd, the good one. In other words, when Jesus says that he is the good shepherd, he's not saying that he's just another shepherd. He's setting himself apart from all the other shepherds that the world has ever seen. He's in a class all by himself. He is the preeminent shepherd, the perfect, unparalleled shepherd. He is the good shepherd. I loved growing up during the golden era of professional boxing. This was back in the day when all the big boxing matches were on national television and you didn't have to purchase a pay-per-view plan to watch all the big matches. I especially loved watching the heavyweights go at it. Guys like Sonny Liston. Joe Frazier, George Foreman, Kenny Norton, so many others. But the biggest name of the Golden Era was Cassius Clay, who converted to Islam and changed his name to Muhammad Ali. Every fight that Muhammad Ali fought was a big fight. But the really big fights were given a name. For instance, there was his first fight with Joe Frazier that was dubbed the Fight of the Century. And then the third fight with Frazier was billed as the Thrilla in Manila. And his Fight with George Foreman, who would later, as we know, sell millions of kitchen grills with his name on it, was called the Rumble in the Jungle, and I miss those days. I used to love to watch those huge fights on television. But if you know anything about Muhammad Ali, you know that he was famous for saying that he was the greatest of all time. Right? He would close out interviews with the media by saying, "I am the greatest. I am the greatest." and he was a multi-time world champion. But Muhammad Ali was beaten five times in his professional career. In 61 professional fights, he was 56 and five, which means that he lost five times. You see, it's one thing to say that you are the greatest of all time. It's quite another to be the greatest of all time. So when Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd, he's all but saying he's undefeated. He's the greatest of all time. And there are three distinct parts to his claim. This is about as simplistic of a Bible study as we could possibly do here as we begin. So Jesus says that I am the good shepherd, right? Okay. So first, he identifies himself as a shepherd. And that means he's saying that he has a flock of sheep that he cares for and oversees. Right? Second, he identifies himself as good. This word good is kolos in the Greek and especially identifies his noble character and his unparalleled righteousness. And then third, the third part of Jesus' claim that sets him apart from all the other shepherds is the article V in the English which means that Jesus is separating himself from every other shepherd. He's not just a good shepherd, he is the good shepherd. There is an exclusivity to his claim. And so with all of that in mind, let's read our passage for this morning, and then we'll take a closer look at it. It's, it's chapter 10, verses 11 through 21. Look at verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep, for he is a hired hand and not a shepherd who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand. He's not concerned about the sheep. I'm the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me, even as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. A Division occurred among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, he has a demon. He's insane. Why do you listen to him? And others were saying, these are not the sayings of a demon-possessed man. A demon cannot open the eyes of a blind man, can he? And so, as I said, today, our mission, as we look at verses 11 through 21, our mission is to learn as much as we can about the good shepherd. And the first thing we need to learn is what the good shepherd does, what the good shepherd does. We, we've all heard the old saying that actions speak louder than words, right? Right? And the reason why that old saying is so popular, it's because so many times what a person says does not match up with what they do. One of my fondest memories from my time working in state government was I got to meet President Bush, George Herbert Walker Bush. I've mentioned this before. But as a reward for working with the Secret Service in preparation for President Bush's trip to give a speech at the Illinois State Fair, I was taken into a room where the president was, and I got to meet him. And we had a great conversation. We talked. He stood up, shook my hand. We had a good conversation. He thanked me for all my work with his Secret Service. I'm not going to bore you with all the details, but he was in town because he was running for a second term for the presidency. But some of you old timers know that the reason he didn't get reelected was because his actions didn't match his words. Remember his famous words? Read my lips, no new taxes, right? Well, guess what? During his presidency, some new taxes were implemented and imposed with his approval, and so he didn't get a second term. His actions didn't match his words, you see what we do validates who we are, and as we considered last week, by their fruits, you will know them, First John chapter three and verse eighteen says, "Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in love, indeed, and in truth james one twenty two says, "But be doers of the word, and not hearers only deceiving yourselves." Isn't it amazing that we see in Scripture that that, that we can deceive ourselves? We can make our our, our minds think certain things that aren't necessarily true. James 3.13, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. And then Titus 1.16 says, and this is referring to false teachers, they profess to know God, but their deeds... But by their deeds, they deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. So here in our text, we find three reminders as to what the good shepherd does. Three reminders as to what the good shepherd does. And first, he lays down his life for his sheep. Again, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, he sees the wolf coming, he leaves the sheep, and he flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. Now, sheep are pretty much known for three things. First, they're known to be defenseless. They're helpless without a shepherd. Second, sheep are simple-minded creatures. They're very gullible. They're notorious for following a leader. And then third, sheep are prone to wander. Now, remember, as we consider this today, Jesus is just a couple of months from going to the cross, but that's not yet happened. So when when he says that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, he's speaking of what will soon take place. I mean, we are a couple of months before Jesus would eventually go to the cross of Calvary and die in the place of sinners. He will soon sacrificially die for his sheep. So there's a contrast here that Jesus shares with this group of Pharisees. He, he uses the example of a sheep hand or a guy who is working for peanuts he's just an employee. He has no vested interest in the sheep. There is no way that a guy like that is going to give his life up for the sheep. When he sees a wolf coming, he's going to turn and run in the opposite direction. And Jesus is referring here to the Pharisees, the fake religious leaders of Israel who pretend to care for the flock, but at the first sign of trouble, they turn and they run away. They abandon the sheep but Jesus is saying he would never do that. He would never abandon the sheep. In fact, he's saying that he will die on behalf of his sheep. He is the good shepherd. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The theological term for what Jesus is talking about here in our passage is penal substitutionary atonement. You might want to write that down. Penal substitutionary atonement. Penal simply means punishment. Substitutionary, you know what that is, to take the place of. And then atonement is is essentially expiation or to take away the guilt from a person's sin. Jesus Christ would go to the cross of Calvary to suffer the death, punishment, and curse that that sinful man deserved. He died in our place. As Don prayed this morning, the just for the unjust. He took the penalty for the sin of all who would believe in him because someone had to pay. Someone had to pay for our sin, and so Jesus laid down his life as our substitute. And I want you to think about this idea of substitution today. Was he the substitute for every single person? No, he wasn't. Only for those who would believe. And who are those who believed? And this is clarified here in verse 29 of our text. Who are those people? All that the Father gave to him. You see, the cross was not random, It was not impersonal. It was intentional and very personal. Jesus came to die in the place of all whom the Father had given him before the foundation of the world. You've heard of the penal code, right? The penal code is essentially the the comprehensive listing of uh, punishment that offenders of a crime would receive. And we see the penalty or the punishment that those who have sinned of against God, is what they're deserving of. We see this here in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. So what does a person deserve for sinning against God? What is sin? Sin is missing the mark. It's missing the mark of God's righteousness. It's violating His holy law. So the wages of that, the, what we deserve, the penalty for our sin, the penalty for every sin of The people that have committed them, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. As we've said, that's the one thing that we all have in common. We are all sinners. And so, for the wages of sin is death. Now, this is referring here to spiritual death, eternal death. But when Adam sinned in the garden and Eve sinned in the garden, that sort of put into motion death as we've said before, that Adam and Eve were created peccable in the sense that they were able not to sin. They they were not created with a sin nature. So they were able not to sin, but they had a will and they committed sin. And when they did, that sin nature then was passed on to all of Adam's posterity. So now we're all sinners. But not just because we have a sin nature, but because we've all committed sin. Every person has sinned. Have you ever talked to somebody and asked them, are you a sinner? And they say, uh, eh, I'm not sure. What? We were just talking in our grace group a week or so ago about this. I mean, we sin and we don't even know we sin. I think we sin so much that we're almost in some ways, which is terrible for a Christian, that we're almost somewhat desensitized to sin, to our sin, And aren't we grateful to the Lord that he's put in a mechanism for us to make sure that we continue with that wonderful fellowship that we have with God because if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The wages of sin is death, but. The wages of sin is death, but. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is why I love that old hymn, Jesus Paid It All. It was written by this lady by the name of Elvina Hall back in 1868. And the chorus of that song goes like this. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as Snow, right? This is why Jesus had to lay down his life for the sheep, to pay for the sins of those whom the Father had given him, to make believing sinners like us white as snow. The second reminder is that he loves his sheep. He loves his sheep. Look at verse 14. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And so here we find Jesus repeating that he is the good shepherd. And we see here the personal nature of his shepherding. Notice here that he knows his sheep, and his sheep know him. He knows his sheep. And his sheep know him. Being from Illinois, it's almost impossible to not have been a Chicago Bulls fan back during the heyday where they won six NBA championships. And of course, the star on that team, everybody knows, was Michael Jordan. Even kids today who probably have never seen Michael Jordan have heard of Michael Jordan, and they want Michael Jordan shoes. They want Michael Jordan apparel. Uh, he's, He's absolutely transcendent and famous because of what he did winning three championships. He decides his father passes away. He decides he's going to go play baseball. So he does for a couple of years. He comes back, wins three more championships, six championships, him and Scottie Pippen won with the Chicago Bulls. So everyone knows who Michael Jordan is. Well, interestingly enough, I uh, had the privilege of uh, going up Michael Jordan's uh, private elevator, eating in his private dining room, Uh, Michael Jordan uh, paid for my meal. Uh, I've been to Michael Jordan's house. Uh, I know a lot about Michael Jordan, but the point of it is I don't know him. I never met him, and I can tell you more about how I was able to do all these other things, but I've never met Michael Jordan, but I know a lot about him. Now, here's the difference. This word know here is the Greek word gnosko, and it carries with it an idea of intimate knowledge. There's an intimacy with this knowledge. It's used four times here in these two verses. It's gnosko every time. This knowing is not just an intellectual knowledge like my knowledge of Michael Jordan. It's a relational knowledge. I had someone say to me the other day, I just love your wife. And while I didn't say that about me, but they said about Kathy, I just love your wife. And while I appreciate nobody in our church, and while I appreciated this lady saying that, I thought to myself, she barely knows her. She barely knows my wife, Kathy. That person's love is based on a few superficial encounters with my life, with my wife. But my love for her is different. Because I have an intimate knowledge of her. That's this word know here. Jesus knows his sheep in an intimate, personal way. And the relationship that he has with his sheep is based upon his unconditional sacrificial love. This is the love that husbands are to have for their wives. We're just at a wedding yesterday where Eli and Tabitha uh, came together in the covenant of marriage. Very beautiful ceremony, but in every wedding I've ever done, in every wedding that I've ever been to, every Christian wedding that I've ever been to, there is always the reading of this idea that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Now we're learning about how Christ loved the church. Husbands are to love their wives in the same way that we're talking about here in this sacrificial way this this intimate way this is not just a knowing about someone it's a relational knowledge okay so the apostle john wrote the gospel of john right but he also wrote three epistles so i want to take you there same author a little bit different context but go to first john chapter three First John chapter 3, and look at verse 16, we know love by this, that he, meaning Christ, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and subsequently, notice, that we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So you see, as the love of God is manifested in us as true believers in Jesus Christ, we imitate that love. And this is why Paul said for husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Now look over at 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7. not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He's talking to believers, those who have fellowship with Christ. Our sins have been propitiated by Christ. Propitiation simply means satisfaction or satisfied. So God is angry at sin. Christ's sacrifice where it says that he laid down his life for his sheep was to propitiate the father's wrath or anger against sin. Okay? So his death, his sacrificial death satisfied God's righteous anger against sin, the particular sins of particular people. Look at verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, then we also ought to love one another. You see, that manifestation of the love of God in us comes out by us loving others. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his perfect love is is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. but perfect love casts out fear because love involves, fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says that I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar for the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment that we have from him that the one who loves God should also love God his brother also. And this brings us to the third reminder, and it's that he connects his sheep. So go back to John chapter 10. He connects his sheep. Look at verse 16. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them along also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. And so, Jesus' audience here is Jewish. His audience are Jewish. He's in Jerusalem. He's speaking to a Jewish audience, but he shares with them that he's got some other sheep. He has other sheep as well. And these would be the Gentiles. Romans 1.16 says, "'For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek.'" Jew and Gentile. One salvation for all who believe in Jesus Christ. All people are sinners and all people are called to believe in Jesus. And all who do are welcome into his fold. He is the door of the sheep. There's only one entry point and it's by believing in Jesus Christ. And so this means that there is a universal offer of the gospel to all people, Jew and Gentile. He is the shepherd of all who believe in him. Which brings us then to the second thing we need to learn, and it's who the good shepherd is. Who the good shepherd is. First, what the good shepherd does now. Second, who the good shepherd is. And hasn't it been great just to be able to learn more about our Savior as we've studied this gospel together? I get excited every single week as I tear into the new. Passage that's before us. I have absolutely had a great time pouring over this. It's been good for me to be reminded about who Jesus is and how much He loves me personally, and how much He has done for me personally. It's been amazing. I love to learn about people. Kathy's gotten used to it by now, but I'll, I'll talk to anyone. Kathy and I do a lot of our show our clothes shopping at one particular large department store. And over the past year or so, I've built a relationship with the store manager. It tells you how much we go in there. So every time I go into that store, he sees me or I see him. It doesn't matter if he's way over on the other side of the store. He sees me, I see him, we come together and we, we talk. He loves sports, very knowledgeable about sports. So it's an instant connection. That's usually our launch point. But we've talked about many, many things over the past couple of years. And since we're about the same age, we have a lot in common. We see things the same way. He knows I'm a pastor. He knows I'm a Christian. He claims to be a Christian as well. In fact, surprisingly, they play Christian music in the store. So I know what he does, but I'm even more interested in who he is. In verses 17 through 21, we learn about who the good shepherd is. And the first thing that we learn is that he is obedient to the Father. He's obedient to the Father. Look at verse 17. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. So Jesus is the son of God and he is the son of man. Those two titles represent who he is. He is both divine and human. One person, two natures. Now let me just mention about what constitutes a person. A person is someone who possesses three essential components, intellect, emotions, and a will. And we believe that within the Godhead, the Trinity, there is but one God, but God has revealed himself as three co-equal, co-eternal persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We don't believe in three gods or three manifestations of God, but one eternal God and each member of the Godhead possesses those three components of personhood, intellect, emotions, and will. And when the Scriptures say that we're created in the image of God, it would be in that way, that we're created with intellect, emotions, and will, the same uh, source of, of personhood that we find in Christ. So, we are much different than Jesus in that he was tempted in all points as man and yet without sin, but we, on the other hand, are sinners by nature and commission and even omission, if you want to include that, and so as a result all three of those personhood components in us as sinners they're all infected by sin. None of them are pure. People ask me all the time, Pastor Dave, do you believe in free will? Well, that's a loaded question. I certainly believe that we all possess those three components of personhood, but how free is our will? How free is it? Because it's tainted by sin, right? It's tainted by sin, and so how free is it? And so this is why Scripture repeatedly talks about that God must be the initiator of our salvation. The Spirit of God convicts us of our sin. God opens our eyes to His truth. We just looked at John 6, uh, 44, John 6, 57, uh, other passages of Scripture where it says that God must draw us, and so God must be the first mover in salvation because all of our personhood components are infected by sin, but not Jesus. Here it says that the Father loves his Son and Jesus, his Son, is in full agreement and cooperation with the Father. Even in submission to the Father as it relates to his earthly ministry to come to die in the place of sinners. But he makes the point that he'll willingly lay down his life for the sheep. You want to you take a look at what love looks like? That's what love looks like. Jesus is sinless, <laughs> he's perfect. He came from the glories of heaven to come down and to die for people like us, sinners like us. I think sometimes we take it for granted. We're a Christian. We've trusted in Christ. We've expressed faith in Christ. And yet we don't live like we're separated from the world. That we are indeed the children of God. That Jesus did what he did. I mean, Jesus was perfectly fine in the glories of heaven. But God loved us so much that he sent Jesus Christ, his sinless son, to come to the earth to die in the place of sinners, to lay down his life for his sheep. This is an amazing thing. Here in verses 17 and 18, Jesus will say that he will lay down his life And take it up again. You see that? It's repeated twice here. Which means that his sacrificial death is not the end for Jesus. This is a reference, a direct reference to the resurrection. And perhaps the clearest and most straightforward mention of the truth of the gospel is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, when Paul says to the church at Corinth, the messed up church at Corinth, says, Now I make known to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which you also stand, by which you were also saved, if you hold firmly to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I handed down to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then Paul repeats to the church at Rome You must believe in the resurrection to be a Christian. Jesus didn't just die and stay in a grave or stay in a tomb. Jesus died. Death could not hold him. The grave could not keep him. He was raised again on the third day. Jesus Christ is alive today. He died in our place. He laid his life down for his sheep. And now he was resurrected, was on the earth for some 40 days appearing to hundreds and hundreds of people in a glorified body. And then he ascended up into heaven from the Mount of Olives. And now what's he doing? John chapter 14, he's preparing a place for us, a glorious, wonderful place. Where's he seated? He's seated at the right hand of the Father, in perfect unity with the Father, perfect harmony with the Father. And this brings us then to the last part here which is verses 19 through 21, and it's the second thing that we learn about who he is. He is controversial in the world. He is controversial in the world. Look at verse 19. A division occurred among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, he has a demon or he's insane. Why do you listen to him? And others were saying, these are not the sayings that one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? Because Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh, there was always controversy swirling around Jesus. Some believed his claim, but the vast majority did not. And we see more of that here because he claimed to be the door of the sheep, and he claims now to be the good shepherd, and this created this controversy among the people, we see it here. Some called him insane. Some, some said he must be guided by a demon. While others, like the blind man, reasoned that there had to be something special about Jesus. He must be a prophet, he must be from God. There's no way that a demon possessed man can do what he did. He opened the eyes of the blind man. And remember, there's no, there's no time break here between chapter 9 and 10. So the same people that were surrounding the blind man and all that went on with that, they're still there, including the blind man. And, and I often do this, and you've got to be careful with this, but I often use a little glorified imagination as I'm going through a narrative like this. I can only wonder what this formerly blind man is thinking. He's the recipient of eyesight. He was born blind. He'd never seen a thing his whole life. He was a beggar. He he had hardly any relationship with people. He He was ostracized from society. He was an outcast. He'd sit on the side and beg for money or beg for food or whatever. Jesus comes along, shows compassion for him, and we, we, we noted that when Jesus did that, he took the initiative. He went to the blind man and he gave, he gave sight to the blind man. He did it through a, a process. He made a little mud pie, he spit in the dirt, kind of made up a little mud pie, put it on the eyes of the blind man, and then said, Hey, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam, and when you do, you're going to be able to see. Well, can you imagine what's going through the, the mind of the blind man? Like, Anything that he could possibly do to receive sight, he's going to do it. So he, someone led him there to the pool of Siloam. He went, he washes off the mud, and he can see just as clear as day. He can see for the first time. He, he, he's like, what in the world have I been missing? I can see everything now. He's a recipient of a miracle by Jesus. And these people are standing around the blind man calling him insane and demon-possessed. So I can only imagine what is going through the mind of the blind man. He's a brand new follower of Jesus, and they're coming hard at his shepherd. I wonder if he speaks up. It's not recorded for us here, but I wonder if he speaks up. I wonder if he just came to the end of himself, became intolerant of all the name-calling, All this nonsense about Jesus, and we're not sure how he reacts, but this man is getting a firsthand look at what it's going to be like for him down the road, and other followers of Jesus like him. We jump ahead a little bit here to chapter 15 of the Gospel of John. We're reminded about this. Jesus told his followers, if you were of the world, this is John 15, 19, and 20. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. And if they followed my word, they will follow yours also. All these people that are coming to faith in Jesus are going to have a rough road ahead. This is what Jesus says. If you live your life in accordance with how I've lived my life, you're going to be hated. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. And, and you think about that and you think, you know, we got a pretty good here. In the good old USA, we got it pretty good. We have brothers and sisters around the world that are being persecuted for their faith every day. And we don't have that much, a little bit. Our brother Mike is going to be, Mike Wetzel is going to be sharing about this in Sunday school. You should stay. We got it pretty easy, for the most part. You know, all throughout. The annals of history, biblical history, we find different instances of these kinds of things happening. The persecution of God's people, the disobedience of God's people, and on and on we can go. And I'm always drawn back to Joshua chapter 24 and verse 15, where Joshua says this, and he's talking to the people of Israel. If it's disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, Choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your father served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living, but for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that must be our mindset. You know, we are sheep. (laughs) Let me remind you, the three essential components of being a sheep. We are virtually defenseless without a shepherd. We're simple-minded creatures. We're prone to wander. So we need to stay close to the shepherd. We need to stay close to our shepherd. Why? Because he's good. He is the good shepherd. He lays his life down for the sheep. That's what love is. That's what love is. Love is born out in action. It's one thing to say we love. It's quite another to show that we love. Right? Let's stay close to our shepherd. Let's pray. Our Father, we're amazed that the story. We're amazed at what you've done. And as we learn more, as we go through the gospel of John, we learn more about all these things that your son went through for us. It's amazing to us. That is the demonstration of love. And so when we're told to love in the same way, we, we have a visual. We, we can see how love is manifested. So may we love that way. If He lay down His life for us, we too should lay our lives down for the brethren. We love Him because He first loved us. And as His love is manifested in every true believer in Jesus Christ, we will love in the same way. Not perfectly, for sure, but may we strive to love in the way that Christ loved. And so we thank You for His Amazing love that He came to lay down His life for us sheep. We thank you for what He has done for us. And Lord, I pray if there's someone here today, they're just wandering, they have no shepherd, they're just wandering around in this world. I pray that You would do a mighty work in their life, they would see the need to have a shepherd, they would see the need to repent of their sin and place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and in Him alone for salvation, because He is the door of the sheep. No one enters into the sheepfold except through the door. And for those who are in His sheepfold, He is the good shepherd. May we be reminded of that today, in Jesus' name.